I lost 20 pounds, over 20 pounds in three weeks on that project. I mean, I was just a, a wreck, right? Getting the gabion cages ready to be helicoptered up to Long's Peak. Um, we had a date for when that helicopter was going to fly, and there was no moving that date. Hi. Hello. 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 Hello, and welcome to Architecting. This is a podcast about the lives of architects. About the people and stories behind the buildings that we see around us and the images that brought them to life. And with the very international world that we live in. This show will purposefully be local and narrow. Only focusing on the Colorado community of designers. Hi, I'm the host of Architecting, Adam Wagner. I'm a Denver-based architect. I'm married to an architect. I have two architecture degrees and I've worked for a dozen different architecture firms in three different countries. But for these last five years, I've been rooted in Denver where I am at Open Studio Architecture and I teach at the University of Colorado, Denver. I love connecting with, with other designers and learning from their experiences. Now I'm broadcasting these stories with the goal of creating a stronger local community. So that brings us to our guest today, Rick Sommerfeld. So Rick is a, a true architect and a true Coloradan. As the grandson of a architecture school dean, Rick grew up in Colorado and then went on to the University of Colorado for his undergraduate and graduate architecture school degrees. When he graduated, he went right into teaching at the school and starting his own started his own design firm. So in his 20 years with CU, he has really become a beloved and, and influential figure, especially with his founding of the Colorado Building Workshop, the school's award-winning and very prolific uh, design-build program. As we'll hear, Rick really pours himself into these built projects and pours himself into the students to create pieces of, of architecture that are very embedded into their place and into their culture and into their um, like tectonic and architectural lineage, I would say. Um, so these projects have been published and highlighted in a huge amount of books, magazines, and websites and have won dozens of awards from uh, places like the AIA, Architizer, Dezine, and Arc Daily. Beyond, beyond all this, Rick is just a, a very warm, supportive, and inspiring friend and educator. He is, you know, he, he's really greatly loved, I would say, uh, by his large pool of past students, um, many of which have gone on to uh, found successful local architecture firms here. Um, he was one of the first people who I reached out to when I moved to Denver and was very open and helpful in making connections to the university and uh, to other people in the in this community. Um, so I, en I enjoyed this conversation as I don't really get to to hang out with him very much as, as much as I'd like to. And, and on a side note, how's this sound? Uh, I hope hope it sounds a little bit better. This is the audio quality here at least. Uh, this is the first uh, recording from my new podcast studio which used to be and still is the coat closet and kitchen pantry of my house. Uh, you can see a bit of the space if you watched Rick's interview on Instagram, not live. Um, and, you know, look, I, I know this is not a, a perfect sounding podcast. I was an architecture major in school, not a communications major. Um, but in general, the show has been a good growing experience for me. 
Um, I think I said this in a few of the episodes maybe, but I recorded the first episode of this show with Brian Dale all the way back in February of 2020. And, you know, I sat on that episode for uh, eight months. Uh, you know, I didn't publish it until November of 2020 uh, because I was really trying to to fidget with it and, and refine it. But mostly I was just getting overwhelmed uh, and kind of freaked out by this idea of starting a podcast and by the idea that, that it, it wasn't perfect. Uh, it wasn't, it wasn't going to be good. Um, and so I finally had to just kind of say, screw it and, and not worry as much, uh, that it wasn't polished or, or refined. And, and that's what you're getting, you know, it's a, it's a show in process with my skills as an interviewer and, and editor and producer can continuing to be refined. Um, and, and it's really been a good lesson for me and, and probably a, a good lesson for a lot of us architects uh, and designers who, you know, it's pretty easy to get paralyzed um, by the, the messiness of this process um, and and kind of freaked out that, that something isn't perfect or isn't going to be right. Uh, and so this is something where if you want to do something, get out and do it uh, and, and kind of embrace that mess and see what happens and, and perfection isn't immediate right um and i've really appreciated uh those of you who have, who have stuck with me and and, and have been enjoying the show and it will it'll keep getting better and now here's the interview with a, a real master of our craft and someone who has definitely had to embrace the the messiness of the design process and and of the construction and architecture process so Here's my conversation with Rick. I hope you enjoy. Thanks. Yeah, it was an interesting day. Um, I, I spent the morning trying to prove myself to the university by updating my dossier for tenure. So that's always humbling to, to try and, you know, put yourself into someone's perspective of what they're going to think of you, you know, at the university level. And then I uh, had a really interesting meeting with a student about Antarctica because we had an interesting um, uh, scientist reach out to us and say, you know, would you guys be interested in coming down and actually uh, maybe redoing our base camp down in Antarctica? We like some of the work that you guys have been doing and it'd be cool if Colorado Building Workshop could come down and and do some work. So I reached out to one of my students who had worked in Antarctica and said, can you have coffee with me and tell me, you know, all the things that I need to be thinking about if this project goes through. And, and then I spent the, the rest of the day actually with a couple of old colleagues at old K-State uh, person, Drew Swihart. I think you, you probably know Drew, um, went to K-State maybe a little bit after you and um, Amber Danzel, who was one of the first design build students I ever had. They wanted to see the bike shelter project. So kind of walked them around Denver. So who was Fun the who is the guy from K State? Uh, Drew uh, Twihart. He's uh, with Surround Architects. Oh, really? Yeah, we flew out there for a design competition to judge the the Manco design competition. You might know about. Oh, that right, was, right. Yeah, that was fun. They picked us up and they're like jet, you know. And Kansas State has a lot more money than we do. I, I've never uh, never had an opportunity to do something like that before. No, I don't think it's Kansas State. I think it's I think it's Manco that has that because that's not. Yeah, uh, but yeah. still, you know, like Manco's got you know connections to K State, and K State's certainly you know using it. It's not like it's a K State jet, I guess, but yeah, still pretty fun. No, that's nice. That's really interesting. I you know I was impressed. Um, Earlier on, I'd said when I had uh, Rick uh, Peterson on, I'd said he he had had a really uh, a really amazing CV 
resume, but that wasn't until you sent me your resume. And it's, <laughs> there's something about the Ricks, man. You, you got you got a ten ten page resume, and I, and now that makes kind of sense where you were you were having to justify yourself today, and and because uh, I was like, this is really this is really up to date. This is uh... yeah. I go through tenure this year, so yeah, I'm trying to put all that stuff together, and um, it's yeah. It, it's a, it's a university CV. It's not a professional resume, right? So there's a lot of stuff in there that uh, is just trying to make you look good. Well, it's it did look good. It's it's impressive. Um, that kind of gets us to that this first big question of of who are you? How, who are you in it? And in, in not ten pages, and but in one <laughs> sentence. Uh, you know what? I don't know. I mean, I guess I've always sort of seen myself as a bit of a misfit um, in the sense that I don't really consider myself an academic. I'm not a, a particularly good writer. I, hmm. I never really sort of fit into that category. And I don't know that I'm really an architect either. Uh, while I'm licensed, I'm not really operating under the same kind of conditions that you guys are all operating under. And, and so I'm caught in this sort of in-between space, which generates a huge amount of insecurity, right? And uh, that's probably something that I've had my whole life, um, be most architects have. And uh, also really in some ways is, is something that drives you, you know, it's, it's something where you want to do something different. Um, it's kind of always been a little bit about the counterculture and trying to, to do something in a different way and carve out my own um, avenue uh, within academia. And I think in some ways that's been really difficult, but in other ways it's really served me well, which is exciting. <laughs> that's really interesting you said that because it's like, I, I can really see that in you not not definitely not the insecurity but but just the the able to kind of float between these two worlds where i mean you're definitely you're, you know you're you're obviously in the university you're obviously like tenured and, and in there but but being outside of it in that certain way you know uh of like of actually building so much you know and having your own kind of niche carved out is really interesting and i, I sometimes i feel that same way a little bit but not not to the degree of of you of course uh where i just like barely dabble in in the university but um yeah that's interesting so i think it was the other interesting thing was that you you spoke to uh, the aia christopher kelly group was it last <laughs> week i think or, yeah, or just yeah. a few days ago and so my wife was running that and so she was like five feet away from me and it was like, I, I kind of try not to get a ton of research into guests so I can kind of be surprised. And so she would just give me like these little snippets and like little teasers of your life that you explained, but I didn't get the whole picture. So it seems like that, that kind of being in and out of the world of architecture and academia, is it kind of part of your background? Did I hear, hear like your, your grandfather or something was a Dean or? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, he is fascinating, right? Um, so I was born in Okinawa, Japan, uh, of all places, right, and came to the U.S. at the age of two, um, right to Colorado. Uh, and soon thereafter, my parents bought a piece of land. My grandfather, um, you know, was an architect, and they really wanted to build a house. Uh, he went to Rhode Island School of Design before mm -hmm. World War II, wow. and then flew planes in World War II, uh, and then after he finished, he went to Harvard at the GSD uh, right after the war. So Gropius was there. He studied under Gropius. He wow. uh, presented his thesis uh, project to Peter Strauss, who was the structural engineer of the Golden Gate Bridge, Walter Gropius, and then I.M. Pei. 
pay offered him a job uh, and he turned it down to go to the University of Florida as a teacher. <laughs> so he goes down to Florida and brings basically the Bauhaus um, to Florida and overthrows the classicists with a whole series of young professors. They do a series of case study houses, which was really interesting. Um, you know, the case study houses are on the historical record, not, not unlike Arapahoe Acres here in Colorado. And then um, gets an offer to uh, become the chair of the architecture department at Montana State. <laughs> and he goes there in his early like 30s and the dean dies unexpectedly and he becomes the dean of architecture for Montana State for the better part of the next like 30 years. Huh. Um, when did he start? When was he, when did he go there then? Uh, he was probably, you know, I think he finished at Montana State in like the mid 80s, maybe 85, which ironically, he was overthrown by the postmodernists. They kind of kicked <laughs> him out a little bit uh, and um, maybe started there some 30 years earlier. I mean, my mom moved from Florida to Montana and they thought that she was moving to Canada um, because they didn't in Florida know where you know Montana was and when she arrived in Montana the people from Montana thought she was Indian because she was so tan um, <laughs> that she had a different sort of uh, skin color so my my parents really both parents grew up in in Montana my my grandfather was the dean of Montana State uh, an architecture department and my other grandfather was a superintendent of schools um, <laughs> and and yeah so anyway um, they they decide that they want my grandfather to design this house and my dad's going to build it uh, from the age of like first grade to third grade, they're building it. And in third grade, we move in. Uh, it's an eco say envelope house. It's built in, you know, the mid eighties, right when um, energy credits are kind of coming in. So we have no central air conditioning, no central heating system. We're operating <laughs> window blinds, right? It's one of the first double skin system houses. And I, I basically kind of grew up on a job site. I was, I was always, you know, building and doing things, which would seem very obvious that I would go into architecture, but they kept telling me like, don't do it. Like, don't go into architecture. You don't, you don't want to be an architect. And my grandfather, I don't know, maybe he was protecting me because those are pretty big shoes to fill. Right. And, um, you know, in some ways I went into engineering, I started uh, going down that route because he thought if you're going to get paid much better, you'll be much happier. But I, I quickly, quickly realized that, uh, that I was not cut out for engineering at all. Uh, and after two semesters at CU Boulder, I transferred to the architecture department and, um, you know, just addicted to it and loved every second of it from that point kind of forward. So what, so what was your father? Did I miss it? Was your father an architect or what? Did no, you he was actually, a he was a judge advocate general. So he was a lawyer, um, and, uh, ended up in Okinawa doing, legal counsel. He moves back to kind of Colorado, but he's, he's sort of a builder um, as a hobby. And he just wants to, you know, build a house. He thinks it'll be more affordable. And uh, he likes the idea of not having a lot of energy bills. Um, they weren't necessarily like uh, thinking about green technology. They weren't interested, you know, per se in, in being um, environmentalists. Uh, it was really more about trying to um, conserve energy for the sake of it just being more affordable. And I know they love the the planet and, you know, they're, they're, you know, great people, but, you know, you're coming from kind of a bit of a military background and he just had this can do attitude. He threw himself into it, uh, made tons of mistakes. Um, but it was always kind of building and construction around me right until I went off to high school and, and going to see my grandfather in the summers, we'd go to, 
the architecture school and see models there and see what was kind of going on and go to his office. And so in some ways I was always sort of surrounded by architecture in some way. And I should have probably thought about going into it much earlier. What, what do you think, what is that? Like uh, that, that being, I mean, and you're a, you're a father, right? You have a, a son, right? A son and a daughter, and that's the same thing, right? Like, don't do it. And I'm sure you, I don't know how you guys feel because your wife's obviously an architect too. But like, don't go into the field. Maybe because you know if they do go into it, that they'll love it, and huh. you really have to love it. But I don't know what that is. But every story you always hear, right? Everyone's just like, "Oh man, don't go into architecture. It's terrible." I know, you know, yeah, because you get it kind of either way, right? And, and you know, some like I feel like I'm kind of like grooming my my kids for it and i probably shouldn't be but like you know the like the story of like frank lloyd wright's mother like putting the the mobile architecture mobile above his crib like i tried to find a mobile and i i got too lazy to make my own you know but i've like been pushing like legos and and books and stuff on him and and he's taken to it pretty well but but it's that thing of yeah of being pushed away from the profession i don't know it's interesting but then it's almost like but you just come back to it right like oh yeah Oh, for um, sure. It's so like you, inescapable, right? Yeah. So you, so you were, you were growing up in Colorado, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. And then, and so CU was kind of just the, that's where you, that's where you'd go. Uh, sure. Yeah. I mean, I looked at a lot of schools at Montana state, you know, yeah. they kind of have to, they both graduated from Montana state. So I was looking at Montana state. I was looking at Puget sound. Uh, there were a few schools that I kind of had on my mind. I, I interned as a, a vet, like I worked at a vet hospital all through, uh, high school and I really thought I'd want to be a vet and then maybe an orthopedic surgeon and uh, and so I kind of actually started in biomedical engineering but um, I clearly didn't want to be an orthopedic surgeon that bad because it was one class actually I, I mean I can tell you very distinctly it was a one credit class in architectural engineering and you had to build a model of the um, it was like a planning exercise to build this model of uh, the business school and you know all of the other teammates that were on the team were just like well this is you know boring and I'm like oh I would love to build a model like I'll do it and you know I started modeling all the little street lights right and I started making like the building and came up with different sort of designs and I was even like using fingernail paint that was glow in the dark so that if you turn the model off like the whole thing would light up which is really cheesy bad ideas but the uh, engineering professor pulled me aside and he's like yeah, you're in the wrong like profession. You put way too much time into this for, you know, being an architectural, you know, engineer. You you really need to just go look at architecture school. Yeah. That's funny. Yeah, you, you were definitely in the wrong spot <laughs> in that detail. So so you went so yeah, you were in Boulder, right? That's that's where the yep. school was at. And um what what was the kind of what was going on uh, at Boulder at the time and and um professors and things and direction kind of it was a great time I mean I I'll tell you between undergrad and grad like I had the greatest time in undergrad school um I I just really think that Doug Darden I don't know if you're kind of mm. familiar with Doug but he had just passed away when I got in there but his influence was still kind of vibrating through the place um you know EJ Mead and Eric Morris were running ARC 11 mm. uh and that was like where everybody wanted to work. We had just kind of gotten into Form Z, which was like this, you know, huge 3D computer modeling was starting to kind of come in. Rhino was being beta tested for sort of the first time. Uh, 
we seemed to be doing really kind of interesting work and we worked really hard. We were there all the time. And there was a cohort of people that I went to school with that ended up at OMA and Berkeley, you know, a teacher and uh, Michigan and Harvard and Yale. I mean, they all kind of scattered throughout mm. uh, the country and did all these amazing things. And some of them, you know, aren't in the profession anymore. And some of them became digital sculptors or went and taught in New Zealand and, uh, you know, whatnot. But I really felt like that cohort was pretty rich and, the school was fairly big back then, you know, um, for, for the time we had just kind of remerged with Denver. And so Patricia O'Leary was the Dean. Uh, she had just kind of come in and, and kind of hooked architecture and environmental design, you know, back up together, but there were still also some really weird leftovers of the environmental design idea from Berkeley, where you had sociologists and psychologists and ecologists and classes that you were taking. And you didn't quite know, like, how do these all, fit back in together and I was really kind of questioning it and in some ways like somewhat disappointing there weren't maybe as many studios as there could have been and so when I applied to grad school uh, I really kind of had this idea that I was either going to just plow through and get a degree at a place like Denver or I was going to go to the east coast and you know go somewhere there and I applied to a few of the schools out on the east coast and the ones that I got into said well you know you have to do the three-year program you don't have enough studios and everything and the thought of going into that much debt was just like, man, uh, I, I don't think I want to do that. Right. So I, um, yeah, I ultimately just decided to go to Denver after taking a couple of years off um, and came here after working in the profession for, you know, two years up in Boulder. Hmm. And so then what was, did it feel like a, a pretty like con continue continuous path from that path you were on in undergrad uh, here in Denver like or was it yeah not really I mean I was yeah. working 35 hours a week I started my own practice at that point in time grad mm -hmm. school just wasn't the same here you know we got here I was kind of excited I hadn't been in school for two years and sat down that first day you know and everyone's around you and you're like all right we're gonna like pull this all-nighter and work through all these ideas and everyone kind of went off I feel like Denver at the time was a bit more of a night school and there were people that were working and doing other things and it wasn't as competitive and as rich as I thought. And it was, it was really unfortunate, right? Like I'm, I took that pretty, pretty hard and uh, it, it just turned into me focusing on work and focusing on starting my own practice and doing a lot of moonlighting at the time and kind of more just getting through grad school. Uh, and, and I, you know, I think some of that, lived on as I started to teach where you're like, well, we really need to turn this into something and we want to make sure that this is a more sort of serious degree. I remember having conversations with some people who just said, you know, we don't really hire CU Denver people, which was as a local pretty disappointing, you know, that that, that education wasn't quite where it needed to be nationally. Yeah, because when was that? When did you graduate? Uh, 2001. 2001. Okay. And yeah, I saw that on your on your resume. So you went you went right into teaching then right after you graduated, right? <laughs> yeah, right. I mean, so, right. No business doing that. And <laughs> why they let me at the age of 24, you know, start teaching in Boulder, I, I have no idea. And for uh, all those kids out there that had me those first couple of years that want their money back, like I, I totally understand. <laughs> I was really trying to figure stuff out. But you know, there's that, that kind of just arrogance of well I guess I'll just figure this out you know and oh sure I can do that you know no clue what I was doing probably but what was so what was that what was that thought like of you know you had uh, two years of interning and then and then going to grad school and then just being like yeah I want to I want to stay in 
teaching? What was the kind of consideration there and the thought? And... Yeah, well, it's a stable income, right, that I can start launching my practice because mm -hmm. I had um, I had essentially uh, quit working at the firm that I had interned for. I had all my IDP hours ready. I was pretty convinced that I was just going to blast, you know, straight into architectural practice naively. And um, the economy was doing fairly well then. I had a number of kind of clients, coffee shops, bars, restaurants, an athletic club, a wine shop. Like there were a lot of these sort of tenant finish projects and small residential projects that seemed to be um, pretty good. And, and that teaching gig kind of gave you something to stabilize, right? So you could start this practice was the thinking. And then, you know, this would just be the stable uh, income that you could count on. And I mean, I'm, I'm so lucky. I had an extraordinarily supportive wife, right? Who was with me through it all and was just, uh, she had a great job. She, she was a, a teacher for a while and then a consultant. And she went back to kind of teaching and is now a principal. But, you know, through all of those ups and downs of trying to start a practice and to do things through the first two years of teaching, um, you know, she, she, we weren't making any money. And she's just like, well, you know, just keep going for it. Just keep doing what you love. And never really questioned how much we were making. It was really more just, are you happy? And do you want to keep doing this? Which was so critical because then, you know, the economy did tank. And thankfully, I had been teaching long enough at that point in time that they wanted to offer me kind of a full-time position. And that, that really sort of held me through that lean times of the, you know, mid to late 2000s where it was pretty rough out there. Yeah. So that, that's, that's the, the third space, right? Yeah. 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 My, my, my brother-in-law helped me sort of uh, name that, which was great. He's, he's awesome. Where'd yeah. that come from? What is that referencing? Well, I mean, at the time I was, it was this sort of notion of, uh, I, I was working right um, at an architecture firm I was teaching. And so these notions of third spaces, these spaces of, of kind of culture and outside of uh, the home, outside of the job, it was a place for me to be kind of more experimental for me to, to have fun. I really felt like I could test some of these ideas that I had been really interested in and had been disappointed in the profession. I really thought that I was going to go out and do all this really, really interesting work. And, you know, the reality was, is that maybe it's Colorado, maybe it was me, maybe I wasn't really good at selling those ideas, but I don't think that those things really ever galvanized in the way that I had hoped that they would, you know, galvanize. And so I was kind of constantly excited by the work that the students were doing. And I was excited by sort of what I was seeing in the profession, but I wasn't really sure how to make that work architecturally, but I knew that I didn't really want to continue to do, um, I didn't want to go down the path of a more kind of traditional architect where I was doing buildings. Like I really had this dream about doing architecture for whatever that means, right? At that time and at that age, like oh, I'm going to do, you know, architecture. Yeah, that's really interesting. It, I, I really struggle with that too, of, of, of when, when you have your own firm and you're teaching, and the projects that you're doing with your students and your students' projects are so much more interesting than yours are when you're doing <laughs> these little renovations and little things. And like, and, and to that thing of like, well, how do, how do I, how do I bring these together? Right. How do I um, do that? So, so when the recession hit, you really kind of doubled down more on teaching. Is that, is that when the, uh, the design build program came about or a little bit, I, I had this interesting thing where um, 
I'm, I'm a senior instructor, right? I'm not on tenure track and they needed an associate chair at the time and everybody else sort of stepped back. And I, I kind of feel like I was the only one left. And so I got somewhat um, pushed into or allowed to do a role that I, again, I probably had no business doing, you know, my early thirties, I'm the associate chair of the department and I'm hiring people and scheduling classes and trying to sort of sculpt things. But in, it was in that time that I really sort of saw the design build certificate program, which we had um, under the direction of Phil Gallegos, start to drop off because he had gone to the University of New Mexico. And I kind of realized that there was an opportunity there to take advantage of, um, clearly was aware of places like Yale's VLOC program and Rural Studio, uh, these national models where people were able to do, you know, fairly interesting work. And at first I just thought, well, I've got to keep this program alive so that someone can kind of take it over and had been doing some work uh, with the Boulder Museum of Contemporary Art, Design Within Reach. It was more furniture based sort of scale, but one-to-one design build work. Uh, and the students really seemed to be clamoring for better kind of design build projects. It had really gone the way of Habitat for Humanity. And so I looked for some opportunities to take that on either locally um, and then also with Design Build Bluff, which was a program that was being run by the University of Utah at the time. And Hank Lewis, who was the founder of that, and he was looking for somebody to come in and take over the other semester, right? Like one semester, Utah students were building. And the other semester, the campus was all the tools, the instructors that were down there didn't have anything to do. So he was looking for a university to come or universities to come and actually do another house. and. I said, oh, I think I can round up some students as the associate chair for that. Got a bunch of students together and said, yep, I've got you know 20 students for you to come down and do this. We'll do it as a study abroad program, essentially through extended studies, which created this whole educational model um, that allowed financing to kind of flow into the university. And I got to kind of run that as almost a business. And then Hank says, well, do you want to just teach all the classes to go with it? Uh, it's this kind of incredible opportunity that had, you know, been dropped in um, my lap. And really to that point, the only thing I had done was the interior of the Boulder Museum of Contemporary Art as a design build project with the students. So I didn't have a huge amount of experience with it, but I had built a house with my dad up in Winter Park and my brother um, that I had designed. And so I had some experience beyond the experience I had as a child kind of growing up building something. And, uh, you know, just really, again, naively jumped into it and said, well, I think we can make something out of this. And that kind of kicked the whole thing off, right? It kicked off this whole idea of, well, what do you want to do in design build? Because in a way that was really opened up by Hank to let us make a name for the Colorado part of design build bluff through whatever we wanted to, you know, study and whatever we were interested in. Yeah. So what, so what was the, that first house that you did with them? The first house was Windcatcher. It was a okay, rammed yes. earth house, thermally broken um, rammed earth because we wanted to isolate the mass and really um, stabilize the interior temperature. And then it had a wind catcher, which is a evaporative cooling wind catcher that we had researched from Design Visitor Center that actually allowed heating and cooling um, through this compressed earth block uh, chimney. So that was, yeah, that was the first ground up project that, you know, I had done with students. Yeah, so tell me about, so, you know, um, I'm, I'm like 
fairly new to Denver, like been here five years. And, and so I don't, I didn't know all the design build projects I went through. And I, like I told you, I went through and looked them all last night and it just like, yeah, it's so immersive and, and such impressive work. Uh, um, but I'm looking at the years and it's like this house in 2011, this house, 2011, this 2012, it's like, how are you doing this much? So tell me about the process of, how long you how long you designed for and then how fast you can turn that around and build these things well it was wild i mean to begin with i mean it's a pace that i look back on and just don't even understand like how it worked um uh we were essentially designing a project for design build bluff in the summer um in in the beginning we were building that house then in the fall and it would finish construction in December. Then I would start the design build project for the local project, whether that was the museum or bird banding pavilion or the Ridgeway stage, right? I would design that through the spring and then I would build it in the first three weeks of the summer. And then I would start the design build project for the following design build bluff project. So I was doing two and sometimes three projects a year because one year we built Scow and Nakai. So we split the group into two groups had eight students on one project and eight, eight and 10, I think, or eight and six, I don't remember. But we were doing two projects down in Bluff and it's an eight hour drive. So you drive eight hours, you'd work for two days with the students and then you drive eight hours home. And then I would teach my classes and I'd go out about every three weeks, um, you know, sometimes four weeks to help them out. So I was traveling, you know, probably 10 weekends a year uh, for design build, right? And I get on the road Thursday night, sometimes after studio was done, drive all night, work with them Friday, Saturday, drive back, you know, Sunday night or sometimes Monday and then teach my studios and then to do it all over again. <laughs> That's crazy. Huh. So, so then, I mean, like, how, how long did you keep that up for? I, you didn't. Yeah, yeah, well, um, <laughs> There was a certain point in time, you know, where my wife very wisely was like, is there, you know, what's the end game here? I've been really supportive and I appreciate like all you're doing and the work's amazing and you're touching these communities and these students' lives. It's great. But I also, you know, like really what, how long is this going to last? And um, uh, is there an end game to it all? And I will say that, you know, with Design Build Bluff, as much as I learned, there were also some really tough times. Um, it was hard to commute. It was hard to not be on the job site every day. There were times when I would go down and I would think things were not being built the way that I would build them. And we would, I would ask the students to remove them. That caused tension between me and some of the people that were down there. Um, but I just didn't want to saddle some of these Navajo families with houses that wouldn't really perform. And the budgets were pretty stable. You know, we were building those houses for $25,000 in materials. That's wow. all we had. And so wow. when you look at that, you're relying on a lot of donations and a lot of labor intensive materials and a lot of recycled materials. And all the time, you know, the projects in Colorado um, were building. And for some reason, I've never had to go out and seek a project. I've somehow been lucky enough that the museum came to me, the pavilions came to me, the, the, the town started reaching out. Um, just like this Antarctica project, you know, that we're looking into now, right? They're just, they just, well, all of a sudden you'll get an email and hard to believe, but they'll say something like, do you think this would be a good fit for your program? So those bud budgets are going through the roof, right? I mean, we started at $8,000 for the Boulder Museum for the Temporary Art, and then the Pavilion's twenty-five dollars at, at, at Chatfield. 
and then Ridgeway's 35 and Lamar Station's 50 and then the car out were bound cabins, which was really, you know, a game changer in so many ways. You know, that's like a $150,000 contract, which maybe doesn't seem like a lot, but for us, it was just by a multiple of 10, you know, more than what we had ever, you know, dealt with before. And it was at that point that you could kind of see that Design Build Bluff, I couldn't keep up the pace. I knew that I wanted to be in control a little bit more, that I wanted to really be the one educating the students through both the design and every step of the build. And it was at that point that I could really just sort of say, and Utah and Design Build Bluff were in a really weird spot anyway. Hank wasn't really sure if he wanted to continue funding it, which you know he was doing. So yeah, we, we basically at that point time just sort of decided in about 2015 to go our separate ways and ever since then I've basically just focused on building in the spring um, semester in the summer so we kind of prepped the project in the fall we designed it in the spring start prefab in in kind of the the spring break time frame and then by June usually early June we're done with the project completely constructed <laughs> still still so fast uh... very fast yeah so tell me about some of those projects. I mean, especially like once you broke off from from Bluff, what was the first, would have been like the the urban farming classroom? Was that one of the first ones kind of off from that or? Yeah, the, the urban farming classroom kind of and Hojo were kind of the same time frame. And then we did the micro cabins for uh, Design Build Bluff and we did the Cobbs cabins at the same time. So it was that first version of the Cobbs cabins where the students um, really sort of saw that the Colorado Building Workshop projects were as interesting to them, if not more interesting than what was happening down in Bluff. So the last project I think we did was in 2015. And the first project we did kind of completely um, separate would be the Cobbs cabins where we built 14 cabins in 19 weeks with 28 students. And that project was if not one of the hardest things that we've done, you know, physically demanding, logistically demanding, budget wise, it was, you know, but it also was like the thing that we just, I mean, it, it just it, to this day continues to get published and it, it's remarkable. Like I sit back in awe of it. I, I looked at Arc Daily the other day in the top 100 to sort of see you know, what the top 100 projects are. And it's like the number 22 searched project in the United States still, like five years later, which is mind blowing to me that these little tiny shacks, you know, get so much attention. What, what do you, what do you think is about it uh, that, that is so that people gravitate towards? I mean, you know, I can definitely feel it, but what, do you have a sense? Uh, of yeah. I mean, it's, it's a cool, cool project in so many ways. Like it, it hit the tiny home movement like right at the right time. I think all the tiny home stuff was really kitsch. It was kind of vernacular, just like how do I take a house and really shrink it down? And I think that student group um, decided that they wanted to really explore something different. They wanted to reinvent what that typology was. We, we didn't call it tiny homes. We very, very explicitly looked at the, the notion of micro cabins and tried to brand it as such. Uh, they're small, they're unique. They're also uninsulated, right? And there's no electrical or there wasn't electrical in them. So logistically speaking, although it was really, really hard for four students to build two cabins in that short a period of time, they also were 
perfectly sort of situated for an architecture student in that they get you cladding and windows and detailing and waterproofing um, without necessarily having to get you into electrical and mechanical and, you know, some of those other pieces that maybe aren't as much a part of an architect's kind of career. Yeah. Cause you, you see those images, you know, and you see whatever, two, three, four units together and they look really fantastic. But then I didn't even realize there was 14, you know, like it's one thing to do the five, uh, but to, to do that 14 times, was it, how, how was it set up with, um, well, I guess to step back a little bit, like it's really, again, it's really interesting, this idea that you, of, of creating this, the, the building workshop. And um, it's like, when you look at this body of work, yeah, I mean, it's a, it's like a firm, right. And, and you're, you're the principal uh, how does how does how is that um, kind of thing for you? Where uh, first you have whatever twelve students designing one project, right? And you have to work through that, uh, and then you have a body of work that you're kind of trying to 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 manage from from year to year, right? Like what what's that what's that process like, or that kind of mindset that you're in? Yeah. I think a lot of the mindset in terms of how we think about things architecturally is really baked into this idea of what makes Colorado unique. Uh, mm. How would you really think about um, Colorado architecture? And in, and in many ways, I came out of a schooling where post-modernism um, and decon, post-structuralism are kind of all coming to a forefront. You know, Tom Main is really hot. Everything's just crazy deconstructed architecture. And it was a really fun game to play, but I really felt that it kind of lacked and was, was empty in terms of what my grandfather would talk about in terms of place, of being in Colorado, site. How do you use the environment, the sun? You know, I'm operating curtains as a kid, trying to let the sun in and, and allowing ventilation to kind of uh, cool the building. So I really felt attached to place. And I had come post-graduation to, to get to know and really love architects like Rick Joy and Tom Kundig and Marlon Blackwell and, and, you know, Glenn Merkitt and got a chance to go down and study with Merkitt for a summer. And so I wanted to bring that idea to Colorado. I just didn't feel like there was a voice that was operating at that small scale that really understood Colorado and what Colorado architecture could be. And, um, really set an agenda that both in my teaching and in my practice that we would attempt to, make something uniquely Colorado that was of its place and used the material and knitted itself into the context and it had a respect for that. And so those lessons are embedded and I think hopefully carry through the majority of the work that we're doing. So for me, that was critical. And I'd like to think that if you look at the portfolio, you can sort of see things really blending into the trees or using natural materials and doing it in innovative ways. When we did the Rammed Earth House, we went and met with, and we talked to Rick Joy. We talked to Quentin Branch, who was his rammed earth person. We went down, um, Rob Pyatt and I, to uh, that area and, and studied rammed earth and said, in our climate, you know, we need it to be thermally broken. There are things that we need to do performatively to make it better. When we looked at the Gavian cages for the Long's Peak project, we knew that the structure had to be embedded. And we looked at Herzog and Demuron's work and we looked at how they were doing it. But what would make it kind of more distinctly Colorado? What would make it perform? It wasn't enough to sort of emulate material ideas. We really wanted to take the materiality and the assembly and elevate it into the, the world of research and academia where you're studying something, right? You're not just producing works of architecture. You're actually researching and studying 
a particular type of assembly and trying to innovate. You're trying to continue this conversation through time where you recognize the work of architects that have come before you and you say, I see what you did and I'm gonna try and um, tweak it, right? Sometimes make it better, but sometimes just make it fit into your area, your context, your place a little bit more. Yeah, that's interesting that, that thinking about the sort of lineage of architecture, not necessarily uh, from a like formal theoretical idea or lineage, but of a tectonic and a kind of detailed in a way, right? I mean, um, because I think to me that, that idea of sort of the theory of architect, the theory of architecture of creating an Colorado architecture is sort of difficult. Like I think you know you've you've created this uh, kind of language and visual style that 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 seems to be very Colorado. But um, you know, can other people create it differently? Right? Like it. it and I obviously the the details of tying into place and tying into environment and tuning it like an instrument for its place uh, is one thing. Um, but, you know, that formal language or detailing, you know, it's, I don't know where I'm headed with this, but, uh, but yeah, it's. Well, it's a tough one, right? And I think that's, that's one of the things that, style kind of comes into play a little bit you right. know, what's the poetry of it what's what's your voice in it all and what's the students voices because in many ways you know you're really looking to the students to to be in this conversation with you which is why design build is so hard and so much fun you know you get 20 new voices every year that you get to have a conversation with and talk these things through and say you know what do you believe what do you sort of see um in this design problem and you fight like crazy as a group to get through it all. And then at the end, they all graduate, right? Like you lose the good ones and um, they go on and do something else and you get a whole new group and you start that whole conversation over. And sometimes you, you know, you want to pull your hair out and just be like, oh man, can I have that last group back? And like, we can just keep going on this. But, you know, th then again, it's really fun, right? And so you get a whole new group with whole new voices and uh, whole new design problems. And that's probably about my attention span, right? My attention span is, is probably like enough to handle a project for about a year. And that's, that's where um, I'm, I'm done with it. And I see these other architects that work on things for five or six years and it's a single project and the patience that they have. And uh, in some ways I'm very envious and in other ways I'm very grateful that I get to continue to do something different. And I can always just be like, okay, well, you know, we're done with that. Now let's like move on to something else. Yeah, it's 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 interesting. I love how on the on the website it lists all the students for each project. You know, and I I went through and looked at every one and just the the sort of lineage of people that you have from there. And I think there's kind of like this almost cult around the you and the building workshop <laughs> of like of this group that came out and and you know, all these kind of fantastic people. You know, raw creative and the, and those guys and that are kind of continuing uh, continuing that. Um, uh, but yeah, it's, it's, oh, it's a cult. Yeah, for sure. And I, I would say the one thing I miss most about, uh, COVID and the sort of pandemic is we would always have a fall happy hour. Right. And we probably have 300 plus alumni now, and we would, 
you know, book these bars or something like that, or, you know, have an event here on campus and you go into a bar and you've booked it out. And, you know, Kate Hartung is amazing, right? She does all this work for us and she'd put the whole thing together and you just sort of show up and to hear their stories and to hear them so excited about it. And, you know, we would have a room booked or something like that. And we'd be back in the room and you're just kind of circulating around and there's different groups mingling and people are talking about what's the project now and what's going on and all the stories of the craziness that happened and the mistakes that we made. And uh, then you'd go out to the main bar and you'd realize the whole main bar is packed. And, you know, it's like 200 people of 300 students are there. And you're like, wow. And the alumni organization is like, the amount of people that you get for an alumni event is completely crazy. So yeah, they're all, drinking the Kool-Aid or it's cult-like, I guess, in some ways, but it's a lot of fun. I mean, just to be on, to sit back and kind of look at it all and just think like that in some way they're all connected and that they're all having fun is, is so rewarding. Yeah. Cause you know, you look at the, the typical kind of studio experience of, okay, we had the same program, but this is my project. That's your project. But yeah. the idea of coming together with 20 people and, and really creating something um, has to be really galvanizing and, painful but what you what what's what in your memory what do you have a most painful day oh, yeah. what's the one that really stands out well i mean there were painful days you know where it was just really hard work the Cobbs cabins where we were doing that and it's snowing on you and you're at leadville it's ten thousand five hundred feet you know above sea level you're freezing you're wet um I lost 20 pounds, over 20 pounds in three weeks on that project. I mean, I was just a, a wreck, right? Um, and, and so those are those are hard days. And you're putting your work gloves on the fire and trying to kind of heat everything up or getting the gabion cages ready to be helicoptered up to Long's Peak. Um, we had a date for when that helicopter was going to fly and there was no moving that date, right? And they worked and worked and worked and we're welding all night. It's three o'clock in the morning and we're still trying to like put these things together. And you don't know, like you got to build them and then deconstruct them. Cause if you build them and they don't go together here, they're certainly not going to go together at 12,000 feet. Um, you know, and then you're kind of deconstructing them and you're putting them on and it starts snowing down here in May or something. And you're like, really, it's going to snow on the one day we're supposed to like helicopter these things up and you get them all the way up there and you, you figure out the sort of logistics of it all. Like we had a trailer pull up that was a box truck. We had ordered a flatbed and the box truck comes and we're like, we can't put these things in a box truck. Like go away. You know, and we hired stuff from U-Haul and we're getting F-150s from, you know, Enterprise and the snow starting to come down and we're trying to piece together like how to logistically put these things on trailers and get them up. We drive them up there. We get them at the helicopter site and they didn't fly it for like two months. Right. They're just like, well, you know, the weather. And you're like, well, it would have been really nice to know that we had another two months to sort of put these things together. So, you know, there's a ton of those type of stories um, that are just hard days or hard projects. Um, and the students are so dedicated and working so hard and they're all crazy hours of the day and consultants are coming in. You know, Justin Morse is the structural welder who uh, owns Brasserie Brixton now. It's this really great restaurant. Um, in in uh the kind of rhino area but he's donated all of his time and he's coming in at odd hours to weld for the students and help with the structural welds it's it's pretty incredible like the community that kind of rallies around these projects hmm. what's 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 do you have the best day <laughs> um i mean there's 
you, you know, you'd think like the best day is when the project is over and you can all sit back and just like breathe it all in. But oftentimes we're so remote and we're so far away and you're so burned out that you don't really have those days very often because you're just trying to pack up the tool trailer and get it back to Denver and they come back to Denver and they're just throwing tools like in, you know, the annex and you're just like, we'll deal with it later. We'll deal with it later. And they kind of all go away. So, you know, I, the, the best days honestly are those happy hours where you go back and you sort of see them all and they can revel in it then, or an opening that's maybe a couple of weeks later when, um, you know, you do get to kind of come back to it and see it and just reflect on, you know, what you've done or when they win awards and stuff, the students really, really love that. You know, we try and buy them the books or get them the magazines and send it out to them. And I think that's always kind of fun or do an exhibit or something like that. But uh, th those seem to be the best days. You know, I used to really think that the awards and the publications and stuff like that were important and I think they are for marketing the program but as, as exciting as it is in the moment when the students aren't there to kind of share it with you or you don't get kind of a chance um, to to sort of talk about the projects with them it's it's not actually as as great as it might you know initially seem yeah a little a little hollow in some ways and yeah 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 I mean, I think it's interesting looking at some of the books that the works published in. It was I was pulled out some titles. It's you know like small but small. What is small scale architecture? Cabin fever. Hundred fifty of the best tiny home designs. I, when you look at the program, I think it's interesting how you first said that you haven't had to go after a, pro a project, right? It's all kind of coming to you. But do you do you know kind of a direction and and how this thing kind of grows or changes or does it? is it able to move past small, like looking at other, other programs typically like this of like rural studios and things like, does it grow? Does it need to grow? Does it, you know, what does it look like? Yeah. I, I don't think it needs to grow in my opinion. You know, this is something that has been interesting because I, I've been really fortunate to get to meet some pretty cool architects through the years. And um, some of them ask me that, right. Some of them, some of them say, well, I would really like to sort of see what you do with a bigger project, but these smaller projects are so uh, ripe with the ability to be innovative and to do really interesting things and to explore stuff that you, I don't think would be able to explore. While I appreciate, you know, like Studio 804's direction and, and the lead kind of component that they're really exploring or what Rural Studio is doing with communities, I think that's their niche, right? And I would like to think that our niche is really doing um, projects that have these incredible, you know, logistical challenges that everybody else kind of looks at and is like, how on earth did you build, you know, four toilets at 12,000 feet or, <laughs> you know, five cabins in the middle of the woods in rural uh, you know, New Mexico, um, or maybe to go down to Antarctica someday, right? Like that just seems like a dream. And, and the whole team behind us is always really excited um, by that stuff because, I think in so many ways, those are the things that people start to notice. They're like, oh, that's that's really interesting that you you took a particular approach to um, that logistical challenge and that the design is in some ways has value because it really intentionally looked at what the design problem was and tried to achieve an architectural solution by accepting that challenge in a way. 
what gets you excited moving forward? So maybe talk a little bit more about the Antarctica one, if, if there, if there's something you can talk about. And then also I was seeing that um, you're working with the, um, the designing Denver with, with Kevin Hurth and Anisia street and the kind of study of five points. What's, what's going on with that? Yeah. Um, the history Colorado thing is interesting. And it, it also sort of links into a longer research project that Kevin and I have been doing on cordwood uh, construction, which I think is a uniquely Colorado piece, right? Uh, there's standing deadwood in beetle kill in the forest fires that we've sort of seen. And so looking at how a small timber, unlike, you know, say a Washington and Oregon has these large timbers and can do heavy timber construction much more easily. How can kind of cordwood construction be, you know, utilized um, as a building material is interesting with the, with the history Colorado piece. Um, the timing was really right for that to kind of look at uh, something that had been troubling me for a while. Um, I think there's a huge amount of underrepresentation in architecture and we're all very, very sort of aware of it. It was something really early on, you know, with women in architecture that we sort of looked at. Uh, there's a lot of um, representation that we're starting to see now from diverse communities coming into our undergraduate program and our graduate program is becoming sort of more diverse, which is fantastic. And uh, my wife who's again, this like incredible educator and is reading all of these books. You know, she always has um, books about race and um, really kind of trying to understand that at the K through 12 level uh, has turned me on to like, what can I do as an advocate? Like as a cisgender white male, like, is there a way for me to help um, bring a voice to these individuals? And so bringing Anisia in, starting to talk about, you know, what we could potentially do to uh, allow these students to put an exhibition together that would maybe speak to some of the barriers that they've seen in their own lives and how they've started to overcome them and showcase their architecture in a way on the steps of a museum, which are inherently, you know, problematic, although Colorado, uh, History Museum has been nothing but wonderful about all of this, but I think it's a place where a lot of um, people don't necessarily, people of color don't necessarily feel welcome. Uh, that was an interesting kind of piece, right? Like, what can we do as an exhibition uh, to bring attention to this? And can we move beyond just turning our Instagram account, you know, into a little black square and saying like, okay, uh, I did my part. And so advocacy became a big part of it. Um, opening some doors maybe to let them have a voice became a big part of it. And Kevin sort of studying the Five Points neighborhood with his studio and a class to really document what's happened through gentrification in that area. I've been looking at the exhibit on the front porch that really looks at some of the barriers that they've done. And so the exhibit will open this summer and I hope it's provocative. I hope it's a little difficult. I hope it's a little bit kind of in your face to to begin to recognize some of these injustices. And then Anisia's studio work with a lot of the same students will be on display in the lobby. So it's kind of a three-part exhibition that I hope opens the door up to not only the students, but to other people who are maybe in Denver that are visiting that exhibit that they can say like, you know, architecture isn't just for uh, white males, which yeah. sort of seems to be Looking, I'm looking forward to seeing what what comes out of that. Uh, you know, I feel like it's it's hard to stay connected with things with with this COVID times, but uh, yeah. it'd be good to kind of center back on that and use that as a, a thing. But 
I just yeah, I really appreciate you coming on and and just the uh, the real role that you play within the school and of carving this thing out and um, like you said, creating this whole kind of cult around <laughs> good, good buildings and, and putting things together and um, yeah. Do we miss anything? You got any any other good stories? Wait, I mean, I know, yeah, I know you're full of them. What else I mean, we... it's like a all night thing, right? Like this, this is the fun of it. But we'll have to do it over beers sometime. Yeah, can, you continue it, or you can come to one of the alumni events and you can be in, indoctrinated into the cult. Yeah, that I'll, is. I'll pretend like I got my hands dirty. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Because uh, yeah. they they are fun, and you know you do miss them, and it's it's fun to sort of watch them grow, like you said, through the profession and to see these people kind of check in with you from time to time and uh, understand where their careers are going and see how they're, they're shaping the built environment and, and what each, I was talking with your wife about this a little bit, like what each person brings to the table, right? Like in so many ways, uh, each one of the students that gets to come into design build, I think in, in some small way is able to hopefully find what makes them unique. And so if my childhood was about kind of growing up around uh, a green architecture, if you will, and uh, buildings that responded to climate and about construction, and I was able to kind of carve myself out for that uh, as, as a kind of profession, you know, what are they bringing to the table? What, what was in their sort of childhood? What interests them? What keeps them sort of motivated uh, is really interesting to me because you see their personality develop through design build. You see project management skills and budget skills and things start to show up that wouldn't show up at a normal studio. And so to revisit them years later and, and see where they're at is, is kind of a highlight, I think, for any educator um, to feel like you were a part of the beginnings of something. Uh, and then they kind of go up much like being a parent, right? And, and hopefully they go off and they remember the times, times sort of fondly. Yeah. Definitely. Well, from what I hear, they, they're remembering them fondly. So that's good. Cool. Good. Well, All right. Let's get that beer soon. Yeah. Yeah. That sounds great. All right. Thanks for having Thanks me for on. That. I really, really appreciate the opportunity. It was fun. For sure. Talk, talk right. soon. Bye. Yeah, see ya. Thank you for listening to this week's show. You can visit architecting.com. That's architect-ing.com to see images from this week's guest. And please rate and review the show wherever you listen to podcasts. Have a great week and keep connecting. This is Sarah Hubbard, host of You and Me Kid, a podcast about starting and raising a family on your own. We just launched season two, and I'm speaking with single moms, those still considering, and experts in relevant fields to give you a real sense of what the day-to-day experience of solo parenting looks and feels like. Plus, this season, I've partnered with California Cryobank, the number one sperm bank in the U.S. So wherever you are in the process, this podcast provides some support, humor, and helpful information. Listen to You and Me Kid wherever you get your podcasts.